I want to share something that came to mind, and it's kind of a little bit of a review from last week, but it's a review of something that I didn't know, and therefore I didn't say. <laughs> so that's why I want to get it out before we get going on announcements and all the other stuff. Um, I don't have a slide for it or anything, but I want to read just the, the very beginning of Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And then it goes on to, to talk about the ministry that Jesus performed that we're going to get into as we get deeper into Hebrews. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much a better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. But the first part of that, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in, and it's an interesting language thing there because it doesn't have an article. So uh, New American Standard says in his son, but his is not in there. And, and the emphasis of it not being there means that what God spoke, he spoke in Jesus. He spoke it in Jesus. And I was trying to think of ways, always trying to think of ways to improve our understanding of that. So I'm going to read something to you. And I'm going to ask you, as we go through the study on Hebrews, even today, but as we go through this study um, and, and think about the relationship with the new covenant in our lives, I want you to think of the new covenant more as an event, okay, more as an event than as a contract or um, a set of rules or regulations. And so when we think about God speaking to us in Son, in a Son, in, of course, the Lord Jesus, okay? I want to read, this is kind of the first time he spoke to us in Son. It's in Luke. It's in chapter 2. It says this, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the field and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. They were terribly frightened, but the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in in a cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. All right. Times past, God spoke through prophets, fathers in different ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us in son. Now, when I say I want us to start thinking about what we're learning out of Hebrews as an event or as events instead of as words or contracts or parts to a contract, I want you to realize that when, when Hebrews says that he spoke to us in son, that he spoke to us in that cloth-wrapped baby. Now, the angels had to articulate the words because he was just a baby lying in a manger. 
But what those words were, glory to God in the highest, here's good news for all people with whom God is well pleased. These are the messages that we get when God speaks in Son. They're not words on paper. They're not a scroll somewhere where there's a prophecy. Those have value. Matter of fact, they've never had more value until God spoke in Son. Because everybody was guessing what they meant all the time. We're going to look at one of those today. Isaiah chapter 53. But God spoke in Son, and the way the words came to earth were not just the angelic pronouncement. They were the wonder in the hearts of the shepherds that ran off to see him. They were Mary's astonishment. They were Mary's earthy, real birth pain astonishment. They were the, the astonishment of the star shining overhead. This is how God speaks in sun. Now, you can think about it in a lot of other ways, because if you could start letting your mind wander forward in time through the Gospels, you have God speaking through Jesus as a young man asking questions to the teachers of the law. If you go a little bit further, uh, you have the encounter of God speaking not just out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I will please. You have him being recognized by the prophet of old of, of John the Baptist. God speaking in son involved sweat and spit and hugs and broiled fish. And we've got to understand that this is the glory of the New Testament. This is the glory of the New Covenant. This is the glory that, that went from priest interceding and sacrifices forbearing and the, the veil being closed until one time a year to God walking around and uh, receiving a woman caught in adultery who was being presented to test him, and she was supposed to die. So God started speaking. In John chapter 14, Jesus said this. He said, uh, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But he went on and he said, the words that I speak to you, they're not my words. They're the Father abiding in me. Read it. It's in John 14. It's beautiful. They're the Father abiding in me, doing his work. Jesus was the one kneeling down in the sand or scribbling in the sand when he said, okay, go ahead and stone her. Let the one with without uh, sin be the first to cast a stone. And the father was working. He was working on those men. He was working on their hubris. He was working on, their, on the conviction of their sin. He was working on that woman by speaking son. So when Jesus said, where are those that condemn you? And she says, there are none, Lord. And he said, neither do I. Those brief words were a demonstration of God speaking in Son down through the ages, all the way from the point of declaring adultery wrong and nobody saying it's right, but all of the stuff, all of the the rape of Tamar and, and all of the, the Old Testament stories about that, the pillaging, all that kind of stuff. All that was compressed in that moment when God spoke through a son and said, neither do I condemn you. 
This is why I say understanding the magnitude of the new covenant is, and the centrality of Jesus in it and the revelation of who we are in relationship to him and that covenant and the Father is so incredibly important because you will not know that he is a light in the darkness, a way maker, if you don't see it in Jesus. You just won't. You'll be left like we have been left for, for centuries when we do this. We, we try to find a scripture here. We try to find a scripture here. We try to balance ones that seem like they don't balance. Let me tell you what. The revelation of God the Father is perfectly expressed in Jesus. That passage I read at the beginning, review from last week, he is the exact representation, the, the impress of who the Father is. You and I do not have to live in confusion about who God is and about what he thinks about us. Because the first statement, the first action, the first event of God speaking in Son called all the heavenly hosts out of their silence to declare his goodness and praise and the fact that he's pleased with people. So anyway, that's what I'm looking for as far as an understanding as we move through the new covenant. I want us to understand that you cannot overestimate how thoroughly and majestically and powerfully the Father and his love for us and his purpose for us is revealed in Jesus. So, that was free. Um, <laughs> Riley, go ahead and call the, call the board up here. We're going to... So, uh, a couple of announcements, and then I'll do another sermon. Uh, joylandlife.com forward slash join. Please keep this copied uh, or, or get a copy of it, and, and don't be afraid of, of sharing with people. We've got about six or eight meetings during the week, everything from just hanging out, having breakfast to uh, a women's tea and a couple of ascensions. It's really, you know, it's really wonderful connecting with folks, and we've already made some new friends. Uh, I'm hoping that things will ease up a little bit at some point in the relatively near future as the, uh, as the uh, gosh, this is going to sound terrible, as the people endued with the spirit of chicken little start losing their voice and they realize that this thing is, is going to be able to get beyond. But uh, anyhow, we would absolutely love to, to, to have you join if you haven't. And if you have any friends you think it might be helpful for, this is how you do it. So what that'll do is give them an updated schedule and you can join on Zoom. Next thing is if you guys want to stay in touch with us or if you have friends do, all you got to do is uh, if you're in the U.S., I, th I think it might work elsewhere, but I, I know it works in the U.S., uh, text the word Joyland to the number 31996. Sorry, I bumped the button. Text the word Joyland to 31996, and that'll let you know when events are coming up and what, what else is going on. Plus, there's some changes and things like that for some of you that are local. It looks like uh, we might be able to use some creative ways to get some meetings going here in a safe way that works within the parameters of the law. We just heard that uh, they're easing up a little bit on church meeting sizes, expanding beyond 10. So uh, we'll find out about that, and I'll keep you guys posted. This would be one way to know that. So we'll be able to get together. And you know what? I, I do want to tell you this, too. When it gets time for us to open up again, you don't have to, if you don't feel comfortable with it, you just stay right here on Zoom. It's okay. We're not going to turn our backs on you guys, and especially you, Alan. If you don't want to book a flight and do the whole, <laughs> the whole thing, we'll be here for you, buddy. Alan lives in Australia. So uh, bless God. All right, next one. 
Uh, thank you, guys. These are the apps that we use primarily to receive our offerings. Um, the Tithely Church app, the blue one, also is where you can uh, you can have me- you can get on messages. There's a Bible on there that you can use. Uh, I think there's a note taking section. There's just a whole bunch of stuff, and it keeps you informed of all that kind of th- stuff. Man, this is I got to quit wiggling it. Uh, the the Tithely Giving app is the green one. I'd recommend you go for the blue one because then you get all the other perks and stuff. But thank you guys for giving. We just had a board meeting recently, and and uh, you guys were just so faithful through all this mess. I just really, really, really appreciate it, and, and I want to bless you for it. Now, I do want to, I do want to talk about a special opportunity for giving, and I'll put that down so I don't hit it. Uh, for those of you that have been around Joyland for a while, you know we have a relationship with this this organization, HopeForAfricanChild.com. Joel is the the founder of it. Joel Benzika, and uh, Joel's been here. He stayed in our home, and I think he stayed in others' home. I, yeah, Tim and Meg are there. They've, they've hosted Joel. I was back over there last uh, September for about 10, 12 days, 13 days, something like that. It was my first time in Africa. I saw the nature of the work that they're doing. These are a bunch of fired-up young believers. Joel actually had a job in college where he worked for the Speaker of the Parliament, and that favor and those connections have served him so well and that actually leads to the reason I'm bringing this up now. Um, the lockdowns in Uganda are more draconian and more political than anything even here in the United States. Uh, as an example, the president is using the lockdowns to prevent his political opponents in an upcoming election from gaining any kind of favor by passing out food. So he uh, decreed that because of the danger of the coronavirus, passing out food to a group of people is tantamount to attempted murder. And he would have the military uh, arrest the people that were handing out food. Now, all that being, being said, and of course it's despicable, all that being said, Joel found a way through contacts in Parliament to be one of the few people in the Jinja, uh, uh, Iganga, Bujigali region there, which is a big, big area. And he thought maybe we could feed 100 people. And so there have been some gifts coming from different sources. We've given some. And that 100 has grown into over 1,000 now. And they're looping back. And this is where they're at. And he's because of the, the way the COVID restrictions are, for the vast majority, they literally have had to take bags of bean, rice, maize, and stuff individually through the villages, house to house. And the people that they're feeding are people that work for a day and eat off the money that they made that day. And so the government did promise, uh, since they were going to prevent anybody from helping, they said, we'll deliver food. And how it's turned out is that uh, they'll drive up, they'll get the video cameras rolling, they'll hand out 10 food packets, they'll turn the video cameras off, and they'll drive away. And that'll be for a village of four, five hundred, eight hundred people. So it's just hideous. So so Joel has had these long-term contacts, and we're at that place where it's cycling back, and they're going to need to to begin to give uh, to the families again because it's been a little over a month since they fed them. And so I wanted to to bring it up. We gave uh, one of our monthly installments of uh, uh, benevolence money to them, and they had an, another friend that they gave a couple hundred bucks, and so that was enough to get a round of food for today, and they're beginning that process of revisiting those families. But 
If you guys can see this uh, on screen, here's, here's the simplest way to give. And I know I just talked to you about Tithely, but don't give it to, to us through Tithely right now. Uh, you want to go to hopeforafricanchild.com. Hopeforafricanchild.com. And then this is a picture of the website. Now, there's another uh, organization, and they may be wonderful, but they're not Joel, and I don't know anything about them. It's called Hope for African Child Initiative. And that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for hopeforafricanchild.com. And you just go to hopeforafricanchild.com. And then there's a button you can see right down there by where that little guy's giving you the, the two-finger victory signer. Yeah. Uh, and it says, give to HACF. What'll happen is if you click on that, it'll take you to their PayPal reception link. And you can give any amount. And any amount will, will, will be great, honestly. Um, that will immediately go into a PayPal. There'll be a tiny fee associated with it. It's like 30 cents plus 2.5% or something like that. That's the only fees associated with this. Uh, that will, that will uh, begin to collect in there. And then probably by Saturday or Sunday, we're going to draw that money out. And we work with a, a program called Wave, uh, SendWave. And it's just for West Africa, charges no fees, and literally, you could give sometime between now and Saturday night. We could have the money in Joel's hands Sunday morning, our time, Sunday night, his time, and people could be eating on Tuesday. So if you have, uh, if you have a, a way to give a little bit to that, it's just Hope for African Child, super simple. Hit that Give to HACF button right down there on the lower left, and that's what you'll see on the homepage. And, uh, and we promise we'll get every... Every penny that comes to us, and like I say, the only fees associated are the minimal fees with PayPal. So we'll get that to them, and people will literally be eating on Tuesday. So that's awesome. Thank you. If you can do that, that'd be great. If you can't, pray for this. There's a lot going on over there. Um, and like I say, there's a whole bunch of political overtones there, too, that are kind of confusing. All right. Well, that first thing was, was a review. But I want you to, I just want to remind you one more time, let's start thinking about this as a relational event as opposed to a contract or a Bible teaching. The new covenant is, is a relational event. And so the title here, we're just going to look at chapter 2, a section chapter 2, is union with a purpose. But the purpose is staggering. It's joining God and man. Come on. This is not about building a temple. It's not about building a church. The new covenant is about joining God and man in a fully, full-bodied partnership of love and of joy and of purpose. It's incredible. All right, so what I've done is I've got uh, this chunk of, of, of Scripture in Hebrews that we're going to look through. I'll show you here. So Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 18 is what we're going to look at. But I've got it broken down in bite-sized pieces. And even looking on this TV with a small thing, I can see that you guys can probably read that. So here's where it starts. For he did not subject to angels the world to come. Okay, this is chapter 2. And this is starting to talk about us and about Jesus. He did not subject to angels the world to come. So when he's talking about the world to come, the writer of Hebrews is talking about creation. 
He's talking about the unfurling of history from the point of creation. So he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one is testified somewhere saying, and that somewhere is a quote from Psalms 8, 4 through 6, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the works of your hands. And you have put all things in subjection under his feet. Don't change it quite yet, Riley. On this uh, second line here, matter of fact, let me grab my pen and see if I can make this work. This part right here, see if this comes up. Yeah, look at that. You've made him a little lower than the angels. One of the things I want you to realize about studying through Hebrews is that Hebrews is a book of revelation wrapped around the magnitude of the new covenant. And this is one of those things, for instance, that reaches out and touches another place in Scripture. Now, I'm not going to go there, but I'm going to remind you that Paul teaches when he was correcting the Corinthians, he says, do you not realize you're going to judge angels? Well, here it is. For a little while, man, mankind, you, me, are lower than the angels, but Hebrews is, is it's, it's a touch point for everything we're called to believe, just about, in the Scriptures. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him over the works of your hands, and you've put all things under, uh, in subjection under his feet. So, that thing, put all things in subjection under his feet, is a direct link back to creation, back to Genesis, the first creation story. And so let me read this to you, and you'll see what I mean by how Hebrews reflects all the time back, forward, to Scripture, to other revelations, to the end of days. Okay, go back there, right? Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then not only did God say that as a declaration to initiate his step to create man, but it says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, what I want you to see, because this is amazing, but I'm not like trying to teach on that. I'm trying to say that this very first re revelation of what God's purposes were for man is referred to in the second chapter of Hebrews because our destiny is being linked to something, okay? And I want us to get that image, okay? Let's go on. So now we're uh, at uh, still in Hebrews 2, 8 through 10. For in subjecting all things to him. Now, the reason I highlighted this in red is I don't want you to drift ahead and think that that hymn is referring to Jesus. It's not. It's referring to man. What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that, that you care for him? Angels have been wondering that for a long time, I think. Anyway, so here it is. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him. That's you. That's me. That's us. But we, do, uh, but we do not now see all things subjected to him. And this is a source of great confusion. Because when you take seriously what God said for Adam, 
that, that I want you to have dominion over all the earth. I want you to have dominion over everything like that. You know, we've had all kinds of movements in the church. We've had charismatic and third wave movements where we're trying to, to recapture the authority of the believer and all that kind of stuff. And for my part in it and the way I approached it was I was trying to do that on the basis of doctrinal truth. And then I was trying to match my faith to it. So in other words, okay, I understand the priesthood of the believer. I understand that I've been called to do something like this. Now I'm going to figure out how to have the faith to do it. That's not, the, that's not the new covenant way. We don't have to work that way. We don't have to muster up faith as some sort of work, some sort of outside magic that we can apply. What we do is we, we well, when we get two chapters deeper, we're going to see that we enter into rest and we allow Jesus to be who he is and us to be in him. And if, if I can do a halfway decent job of getting this out to us, our lives are going to be better for it because we are going to live stress-free, Christ-aware and Father-embraced lives. And it's going to be good. Now, I'm not saying that we don't do that some. We do. I'm not saying you don't do it some. But what I am saying is that the magnitude of this passage of Scripture is that we are there, but we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But here's what we do see in verse, uh, verse 9 here. Okay, go ahead and put it back up, right? I'll draw on it a little bit. In verse 9, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Now I want you to notice something. The writer knew that he was parsing thoughts that people would have. And they were going to be confusing about who's him and who's not him. For in subjecting all things to him, man, he left nothing not subjected to him, man. But now we do not see all things subjected to him, man. But we do see him, Jesus, and we know that because it's a, it's a sentence. We do see him, Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In a minute, we're going to understand that death is the thing that has kept us from experiencing the position that we were destined to have and created to enjoy. So now it's saying here that because of suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, this could jump to a million places. Every one of the gospel, um, every one of the gospel narratives of, of the work of Christ on the cross all of that kind of stuff is wrapped up in this. But this also gives a point to it. You know, if you were to ask most Christians in our, our country or in the Western world, why did Jesus die on the cross? They would say uh, to forgive our sins or for our sins or something like that. Now, we're going we're gonna to look at a little bit of detail about that. But I'm here to tell you that he had to die on the cross because of our sins, but that's not why he came and that's not why he died. He died to unite us back into the Father and to our destiny. That is why. He took us into him. You remember in John chapter 12, when uh, the, the people were asking about him and all this kind of stuff, and there was that voice. He said, if, I, if the Son of Man be lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself. You and I, as difficult as it might be to understand, are literally in the full embrace of Jesus, in him, 
And he says that again in John 14, uh, around verse 20. He says, do you not know that in that, or in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. This is where this is reaching to. And then it says, for it was fitting for him for whom all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. All right. I, I highlighted sufferings on the bottom there because I want you to be thinking about it when we move into the next passage uh, of, of Scripture that this reaches out to that we're going to look at. And we're going to go to Isaiah 53. Um, I, want you to, I want you to understand what those sufferings are who inflicted them on Jesus and what Jesus was about in, in tolerating them, what he was about in receiving them. And so we're going to do our best to try to understand that. Let's go on. So like we linked all the way back to creation, now we're linking back to the prophets. Remember, it said that in times past, uh, in, in many ways through the prophets, Jesus spoke to the fathers, but now in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. So here is an example of how understanding that reality and how the revelation of the book of Hebrews around the new covenant allows us to go back and understand what Isaiah was talking about and prophesying about. Okay? So uh, this is, I've got two or three different verses, and I want to show you why it's important to think this through regarding what really is happening. So the first uh, version of this, Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, is the New American Standard. And I like the New American Standard for the most part, but the New American Standard is not influenced by New Covenant theology in this translation. It's influenced in that old blended theology of substitution, penal substitution, and all that. So here, let me read it real quick, and we're going to move through them quickly. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening of our will being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now look at those, particularly the ones highlighted in red. Pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The word for there turns this into a transaction. It turns it into something that Jesus did for you. And that is not an accurate picture of what went on on the cross. He did not, he did not get pierced for your sins. Actually, he got pierced by them. Okay, so let's look at the, this one has a, a, a significantly better translation. And I'm not going to ask you just to believe me on that. I'm, I've got a little bit of evidence here. So here it is in the complete Jewish Bible. In fact, it was our diseases he bore, our pain from which he suffered. You see how it's already feeling different? It's not a penalty for some failure on our part. It is literally the failure that he bore. In fact, it was our diseases he bore, our pains from which he suffered, yet we regarded him as punished, stricken, and afflicted by God. But he was wounded because of our crimes. There's lots and lots of of uh, translations, if you check it, they'll use the word because. He was wounded because of our crimes, crushed because of our sins. There was a causative action. It wasn't a random thing. It wasn't a for thing. It wasn't a substitutionary thing. He was literally wounded because of these things. 
The dis- disciplining that makes us whole fell on him, and by his bruises we are healed. We all like sheep went astray. We turned each one to his own way. Yet Adonai laid on him the guilt of us all. That would be a big study right there. What does it mean that God laid on him? You know, in this in this goofy notion that the Father and Son got at cross purposes at the at the cross, that Jesus was here interceding for the people, and the Father was trying to take care of sin, so the Father had to punish Jesus, and turns back, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's called penal substitutionary atonement. It's nonsense. And I'm sorry to be so direct, but I don't have time to talk about it. Never has the Father turned against the Son. Never has the Son taken up a cause that the Father didn't do it. Because remember, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. These words, they're the Father abiding in me, doing His work. The Father was abiding in Jesus, doing His work while He was on the cross. He wasn't outside him somewhere whipping him, shooting lightning bolts at him. And if, you, if, if you've never heard that, just ask the Lord what went on on the cross. Okay? Now, I started digging around because I wanted to be sure that it wasn't just me reading into this or whatever. And I came across this, and it's, uh, it's an English translation. This is actually the name of the translation an English translation of the Holy Scriptures revised in accordance with Jewish tradition and modern biblical scholarship by Alexander Harkavy, published by the Hebrew Publishing Company in 1916 in New York. And this is from a letter uh, that Jews for Jesus put out called A Rabbi's Dilemma. I'll look at Isaiah 53. All right, let me read this to you. Surely he hath borne griefs inflicted by us. That's pretty direct. That's exactly what Jesus said to his disciples when he was heading up to Jerusalem for that last time. He says, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be killed. <laughs> Jesus said that, but we ignore it. And we come up with some kind of theological. And I love theology, but I don't love theology that, that paints a false picture of who the Father is and what the purposes of the Father and the Son are. So surely he hath borne griefs inflicted by us. Go ahead and call it up there, Riley. He has borne griefs inflicted by us and suffered sorrows we have caused. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. This is a, this, this verse right here, verse four, perfectly explains, perfectly explains, uh, the, the way I've thought most of my life with Reformed theology and the way most of people around it bump into this. We don't understand that we're the ones that killed him. So we think God picked on him. And we create a theology that says God was too holy to look on sin, so he had to turn his back. But he was still able with his back turned to punish Jesus. That's not true. Look at verse 5. But he was wounded, not just because, but through our transgressions. That means that the wounds that Jesus... If we take this through in here... He was bruised through our iniquities. That means that the gospel story, particularly as it revolved around Jesus' arrest, death, resurrection, has an undertone to it that can't be discerned otherwise. And it's, it's, it's a union undertone. It's what was Jesus after when he went to Jerusalem? What was he after when he went to the Kidron Valley? What was he after when he could have walked away? 
Because if you remember in the Kidron Valley, Jesus was approached by a bunch of soldiers and he was the temple guard and by Judas. And, uh, and he said, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said, well, I am. And they all fell down. And they couldn't have got up if he didn't let them. They could not have arrested him. This was not these guys taking Jesus. This was Jesus crossing, crossing into the Kidron Valley to get to the deepest, darkest, most betrayal-oriented, evil place that men could come to. A place where they not only would reject God and his love, but they would kill him. Jesus wasn't there just worrying about somebody stealing a couple of shekels. That's not what this is about. That's the way we treat it. And then we manage our own shekel stealing and think that we're getting in a good position with God. No, Jesus was looking for the place that was the core of alienation and blindness and pain and fear in people. And he found it there among those Roman soldiers, those Jewish guards, and above the, in the betrayal of, of uh, Judas. And he walked into that willingly, helping them, strengthening them so they could arrest him. And he got down to the depth of that. And you won't get that if, if he just died for our sins. Or he died. But, it, but it was, he was wounded through our transgressions. It was the vitriol and the bitterness and the hatred and the independence and rebellion that sin had been able to foster and foster and foster down through the ages that finally was focused in this one place. The whole cosmos was focused on it. The devil thought he finally got him where he wanted. All of the fallen angels were, were you know, gathered around looking probably. Here it is. It's coming to a head and nobody had any idea what was really going on. What was really going on, Jesus said in another place, he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. This is a willful, self-determined act from the heart of the Father manifesting in Jesus His love for humanity and His eternal purpose to redeem us and raise us up to the destiny that He originally called us on. That's why it's important to understand that in Hebrews chapter 2, we are connected with creation and our destiny, and we are created with Jesus getting to the farthest end of our rebellion and the deepest darkness of that rebellion and destroying it from the inside. The chastisements of our peace was upon him and with his wounds we were healed. There's the exchange. He was wounded through our transgressions. And as we get further on, a little bit, just a little bit, even today we'll get to it. Here's where we're at. Okay, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. All right, I've got to speed along a little bit. I'm going to get back to Hebrews now. So, yeah, good, you're up. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. What a stunning statement. Hebrews reveals that you and you and you and you and me, all who needed sanctifying, and Jesus, who was the sanctifier, are all from one Father. All of us. 
I remember talking several months ago about when did God become our father? And, uh, and then it, it led to questions about, well, is he our father until we uh, are, are born again? Is he our father or are we just like uh, creations of his or whatever the case is? He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. I'm not going to parse out the when, when the sanctification happened, but I believe it happened then when he went down into that darkness and blew it up. Because if I be lifted up, if the Son of Man be lifted up, I will draw all to myself. All right, keep going. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and this is some Old Testament stuff, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Why was Jesus incarnate? He was incarnate because we had flesh and blood. That was the plan. There's my children. Go down and be one of them. And here's why flesh and blood and sharing that with us was important. That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. There is a truth that sin enslaves you. But there is a deeper truth that fear is the enslaving power behind sin. Jesus came to wreck fear and do away with sin. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now what we've done, like we, when we jump back to creation at the beginning, and then when we jump to this prophetic realm, we are now jumping to Paul's teaching in Romans about the manifesting of the glory of the sons of God that is going to liberate creation because it was subject to futility. Let me back up, show you the connection. To free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. That slavery reaches beyond just people. I consider the suffering of this present time, this is Romans 8, 18-21, not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. There is something being revealed in you and I that creation is waiting for so that it can be set free to be once again what it is. I don't have time to go into all kinds of detail, but I want you to think about something. If you read the, the creation accounts, in Genesis, it says, and the earth brought forth, and the earth brought forth, and the earth brought forth. Then when the curse came, the earth didn't bring forth in the same way, and Adam had to work by the sweat of his brow. Creation is designed to bring forth life. Sin and independence and isolation and eventually getting down to that place of hatred towards God 
it's suppressed. And it says here that the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing because creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. What is that hope and who is him? Him is God. Subjecting create, uh, creation to that futility and frustration that we now experience where there's disasters and you have to, there's just all kinds of things that go on that aren't the way they were intended to be. So that creation will also be set free from its slavery to corruption. So not only did Jesus come to set you and I free from the fear of death and the slavery that that caused, he came to set creation free through us. This is the glory of the new covenant for your destiny and my destiny. It's not just a ticket to heaven. It's not just us being forgiven for our sins. And if we, get, if we think ahead just for a little bit up to chapter 8, then it begins to make sense that this, all of the whole condition of that new covenant is because God's going to greet us with mercy or have mercy on our transgressions and remember our sin no more. That's not just an isolated promise. That's this. That's the restoration of our initial purpose. And that's why I say the new covenant and the understanding of the magnitude of the new covenant as it revolves around Jesus and us is a key to understanding the whole flow of biblical history. It's a key to understanding where we went wrong and how it's being set right. And, and we won't get lost in little minutiae details. All right, we're back here again. Uh, it says quickly, for assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, and here it is in, in this blue passage, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Um, I don't want to go too much further with this, but if you've heard me teach before, I really had this wonderful discovery about the words behind propitiation. It's it's the... Uh, uh, Elasmos family of words. In the Septuagint, the Greek New, uh, Old Testament, about 300 times those words are used for the mercy seat of the ark, the gold lid of the ark, with the cherubim and the glory of God in the middle. Uh, that's what Jesus has become. He's become that place, not some pagan sacrifice. He's become that place where men and God meet together and their sins are no longer an issue. And we'll see that as we get deeper in. But he had to be made like us. Jesus was made like you so that you could identify with him. Hebrews chapter 2 teaches us that he came to be us. And the covenant that exists between him and the Father, we're in it, in Christ. You don't have to do anything to get in it. You just need to start believing and receiving and recognizing and acting in the covenant that you're living in. I hope that makes sense. We're going to get more. So here's some questions uh, for the breakout session. And uh, one is, what does Scripture mean in these last days? God has spoken to us in His Son. Why in the new covenant are we in a position to enjoy the beauty of prophecy, poetry, history, and all that stuff better than we ever have been? One of the, one of the uh, pushbacks I got when I started teaching about the new covenant uh, is is the people that appreciated uh, Old Testament prophecy, that appreciated the the poetry of, of, of Jewish life and all kinds of stuff. Uh, if it sounded like, and I probably was, sounded like I was a little whack it off. It's no value. No, Jesus is the way to understand those things. He's the one that's going to cause the beauty to come out. But He is the one. I do. I do want you to know that He is the. He's the 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 
historic epicenter and a continuation. The eschatos is really the word. And then over here from tonight, why is it important to see and understand our union with Jesus and his union with us as a daily reality? How are we connected to creation now and by whose hands and deeds did Jesus suffer and what did it gain for him? And if God didn't inflict such abuse on his son, let me say that one again. If God was not the one that inflicted the, the abuse on Jesus on the cross, why did he tolerate it or in one place prophetically say delight in it? So those are some questions.